We'll be back in Colossians this morning. As you could tell, we've we had a break for several weeks uh, because of the conflict in the Middle East. So we were addressing the conflict in the Middle East. We were addressing Bible prophecy and how it relates. We were addressing Israel and its position in the heart of God and among the nations. We were addressing Islam, and we also had the Mwangwaza Children's Choir here. So it's been some time since we've been in Colossians. But remember last week, we spoke about the difference between Christianity and Islam. We were drawing uh, distinctions between Jesus and his person in his ministry and what the Quran teaches about Islam. You guys remember that from last week? And I got a praise report this week via email that I want to uh, share with you. It's awesome. This guy is a doer of the word, uh, what we all should be. He lives in Los Angeles. He's a member of our uh, church plant down in Los Angeles, Reality Los Angeles. But occasionally he comes up here on a Sunday evening to catch the service and just, you know, reconnect with us because he's got relationships. But he sent me this email. He said, I drove up to Carp on Sunday and you were giving a message contrasting Jesus and Islam. It was good stuff, by the way. So the next day, for some reason, I felt led to burn the teaching onto a CD so I could listen to it in my car. I felt that it would be really good to be able to quote some of those scriptures you shared. So I left it in there just on repeat to sink into my mind. Wednesday evening, I went out with some people to do some street witnessing in Los Angeles. And guess what? The Lord leads me straight to this young man who just happens to be a Muslim. And a somewhat depressed one at that. His name was Tim, and he was from Russia. As I was talking to him, uh, and then finally got into talking about the gospel, I couldn't help but see his unbelief. Then I finally heard what was his unspoken objection. He was thinking, how could God possibly just forgive me like that? And he was even talking about being insecure about salvation and continually falling short. Everything you talked about in the sermon. Allah loves those who do good. Allah does not love transgressors, so on and so forth. So I was talking to him and giving him all those scriptures from the Quran and the Bible, countering the Quran ones with the word of God and talking about God's love for him and his desire to save him and spend eternity with him. Long story short, he accepted the Lord by the end of that night. And he walked off with a huge smile on his face and very excited that his sins were washed away. Isn't that awesome? Listen, this young man from L.A., he just purposed in his heart to be a doer of the word. You know what I mean? He he took home the CD. He said, I want to commit these things to memory. I want to dig in deeply. And then first chance he had to be a doer of the word. Because remember, I gave you the challenge. Go out and preach the gospel to a Muslim, please. First chance he had was Wednesday night. He won out. First person the Lord brings him to is a Muslim that gets saved. That is what it's all about, people. That is being a doer of the word. And God has that for each and every one of you. God wants to use your life like that week in and week out. The Lord wants to use you. The question is, how much are we willing to be used? I think he wants to use us more than we're often willing, and that's proof. Let's pray for this young Muslim man named Tim. Lord, we thank you for salvation that night. Thank you that you saved him. Thank you that you removed him from that burdensome yoke of Islam, that performance-oriented, insecurity-breeding religion. Thank you for saving him, for setting his feet upon the rock. Thank you for the sure forgiveness he has experienced. And Lord, now we stand in the gap for Tim. 
We ask that you'd flood his life with grace even at this moment, Lord. Flood him with grace. And Lord, fill him with your spirit. And we would ask that you would anoint him as an evangelist. We ask that he go back to his Muslim friends and family and that he would tell them the wonderful news about you. Thank you for the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Thank you for this young man from Los Angeles, his faithfulness to just preach it. Thank you for your goodness to work it and to save Tim. Bless him, Lord. And make us such doers of the word. We know your word says you prepare good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, open our eyes to those things. We want our lives to count for your glory. We want to be used for your kingdom. And so Holy Spirit, now, I ask that you would author my thoughts and my words, that you would anoint them, that your holy word in the hands of your Holy Spirit would be life-transforming today, that freedom would come to those who are bound up, power would come to those who are weak, and that your kingdom would be expanded for your glory this morning, Lord. We ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to pick it up in Colossians, right where we left off, which is verse 16. We'll read through to the end of the chapter, and then I'll remind us of the context, and we'll finish chapter 2 and even dip into chapter 3 for just a moment today. So let's start reading in Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using and are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That's a mouthful, those few passages. Give me an hour, and I think you'll have some understanding about what they say. Remember the context, first of all. Paul wrote this letter, this epistle, to a church in a place called Colossae. Now, Colossae is in modern-day Turkey in an area called the Lycus Valley. There are some other well-known churches and cities there. The church of Laodicea was there. That's the one in the book of Revelation that Jesus said, I don't want you hot or cold. I mean, excuse me, I don't want you lukewarm, but hot or cold. There was a church of Aeropolis there. And when Paul is writing to this church in the Lycus Valley, the church of the Colossians, he's hundreds and hundreds of miles away in Rome. And he's in a prison in Rome. He's been in prison for his faith. And he's never been to Colossae. He's never met these people face to face. But he has a sincere burden for them. We know that his prayer life has already been pictured at the beginning of chapter 2. We studied it extensively weeks ago. 
But a, a man comes from the church in Colossae, visits Paul in Rome, and he tells Paul that there are some false teachings that are beginning to penetrate the church there in Colossae that are threatening the well-being and the theological integrity of that church. Now, these false teachings had their roots in two sorts of ideologies, one being legalistic Judaism and the other being Greek philosophical thought. And you'll see as we move through the text how those two play out. But what Paul is doing in this letter is addressing those false teachings, those false ideas about who Jesus is and what his work has accomplished and how we live the Christian life. He's addressing those head on. And he's going to continue to do that through the end of chapter 2. Now he says in verse 16, therefore. It's the first word in your Bible there in verse 16. Therefore. Now anytime in the Bible you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what it is therefore. You understand? Because that word is referring to something that came before. Something that we need to bear in mind as we go into the next statements of Paul. So therefore, what is it therefore? Well, he's referring to the previous verses where he demonstrates, starting in verse 9, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is totally sufficient for our salvation, for our Christian life, and for eternity, and that nothing needs to be added to him. He says in verse 9, that in him, in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells. He says in verse 10, that in him, in Jesus, we have been made complete. He says in verse 11, that in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh, that is that old sinful nature. He says in verse 12, that we have been buried with him in baptism and raised up with him to new life. In verse 13, we have been made alive with him because he has forgiven us our transgressions. Verse 14, he has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he, Jesus Christ, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And verse 15, he, Jesus Christ, has disarmed demonic rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, through the cross. Now, what more do you need than Jesus Christ? Everything that we need is in Him. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. He is the beginning of all things. He created all things. All things exist by Him and for, uh, for Him. Apart from Him, there is nothing that exists. Colossians tells us that He Himself holds all things together. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is the reason. He's the focus. He's our Savior. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one for whom we are currently waiting to come for us. Amen? It's all about Him. He is everything. We don't need to add anything to our Christian life. All that we need is found in Jesus. So then Paul says, therefore, because of that, verse 16 now, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ Jesus. Now, 
In verses 16 and 17, now Paul is going to address something known as legalism. You might be familiar with it. Legalism within Christianity and the temptation toward it. And then in verses 18 and 19, he's going to address false mysticism. And then in verses 20 through 23, he's going to address asceticism. And we'll define that when we get there. But first of all, legalism. We can discern from the context here, from what we're told in the text, that these false teachers were coming in sort of with the background of legalistic Judaism and saying to these Christians that in order to be complete in their walk with the Lord, they needed to observe some of those Jewish laws as outlined in the Old Testament. Ceremonial laws such as what to eat, vessels that could contain drinks, various festivals on the biblical Jewish calendar, uh, the new moon, which was how they set their calendar, and the Sabbath. And the temptation was this. Hey, you guys are Christians. That's great. That's awesome. But you know that Christianity came out of Judaism. And so it did. Absolutely. We've just been grafted into those promises. But if you guys want to have the fullness thereof, you've got to practice some of these things. Some of these food and drink regulations. Some of these ceremonies and festivals and calendar days and the Sabbath. And if you don't do those things, then you don't really have all that Christianity has to offer. And the way that they would tempt them is say that they were simply necessary for their spiritual development. Now, we know that in the Old Testament economy, Jews were obligated to keep the law, as outlined in the Old Testament. But Christians have been set free from the law because the totality of the law, according to Jesus in Matthew 6, has been fulfilled in him. He never said that he came to put an end to the law. He said that he came to fulfill the law and that the whole of it points toward him. So if you have Jesus Christ, you have everything that the law could ever offer and much more. And you have the fulfillment of it, the substance of it, as it says in verse 17. And and therefore, what you eat or what you don't eat... Where you show up, where you don't show up, a certain day or another day, these external observances do not contain in and of themselves any spiritual value. They don't make God love you any more. And a failure to follow them doesn't make God love you any less. He loves you perfectly. Are you a cheesy Christian today? You know if you are. God loves you perfectly. God loves you. Amen. Ooh, queso right there. He loves you perfectly. Have you been going to church every Sunday for three years and reading your Bible every day? He loves you perfectly. He doesn't love you any more than the cheesy Christian. He doesn't love the cheesy Christian any less than he loves you. His love is perfect. It can't be added to. It can't be improved upon. And it will not be removed from you. He has committed himself to loving you by way of his character, his nature, and his covenants. The Lord loves you perfectly, cheesy or not. That's good news for a guy like me. That's wonderful. And so external observances then do not in and of themselves have spiritual merit. They can't add to or subtract from our spiritual well-being. Now, if a Christian so decides to celebrate a Jewish feast, as I sometime am inclined to do, 
to abstain from certain foods or uh, certain, or to, to engage in certain washings or to observe certain days. If a Christian wants to do that, to remember, to commemorate, to celebrate in some way Christ Jesus, then that's good. That's fine. There's no problem with that. That should be settled in the conscience between him and his God. But if he thinks then that he's somehow better than the Christian that doesn't, he's got a real problem theologically. And if he seeks to impose upon others that they should adhere to certain dietary regulations or abstain from certain things or do certain days or festivals, if he seeks to put that on others, now he's putting the yoke of the law upon them and he's in trouble as the Judaizers were in the book of Galatians and here in Colossians. Now, it's very clear in Romans 14, verse 5, concerning days and festivals and the Sabbath, so on and so forth. It says, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, when do you want to worship the Lord? I don't care, Paul says, pick your day. It's the Lord any day that you want. Now, some people, Messianic Jewish congregations, often celebrate uh, on the Sabbath day. Others on Sunday. There's Seventh Day at Venice. They choose to meet on Saturday. You know what? It doesn't matter. How about you worship Jesus every day? It doesn't matter. You want to meet on the Sabbath? That's great. By the way, uh, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. Uh, Sunday is called the Lord's Day in the Bible. Don't confuse the two. You want to keep the one and not the other? It doesn't matter. The Lord is the Lord. He loves you. You've been saved. Worship Him every day. Romans 14, verse 7 says, concerning dietary regulations, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but rather it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not about what you eat or drink or don't eat or don't drink. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, you know as a Christian that your righteousness comes from God. Amen? not from external observances. Our righteousness comes from the fact that we have been identified with Christ Jesus, that his account has been credited to ours, that it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith unto him. So my righteousness is imputed from him. I have no righteousness of my own from external observances or deeds. And what that brings to the life of the, of the Christian is incredible peace and joy, and freedom. Oh, it's not about what I do or how I fail. That is wonderful. It's not about what I've done or what I haven't done. It's not about what I can keep up with or can't keep up with. It's about Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done upon the cross. And you are in him, and the Lord deals with you according to grace, Romans 5.1 says. That is so wonderful and so freeing, and it just brings joy and peace to the life of the Christian. But legalism, legalism is the joy robber. It robs the Christian of his joy. It robs him of that peace, and it brings him under the yoke of slavery. Now, in the book of Acts, we see that the early church was initially all Jews. The gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, we're told in Romans 1.16. And Jesus came to, uh, first to the lost sheep of Israel. And so the initial church was all Jews. And then Gentiles began to get saved round about Acts chapter 10. 
And by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, a lot of Gentiles or non-Jews were getting saved. And the Jews were tripping out a little bit, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And so they convened a council there in Jerusalem. And they said, okay, listen, these Gentiles are getting saved. This is wonderful, but it's our Messiah. And and they're being grafted into Judaism, and and so they were, Romans chapter 11 says, we've been grafted into the promises and covenants of Israel. And, And so, you know, it seems maybe to us that they should do some Jewish stuff. I mean, his name is Yeshua. He's a Jewish Messiah. This is a Jewish thing. Maybe these Gentiles should do some Jewish stuff. Maybe that makes sense. And Peter says, come on, guys. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 15, verse 10. And he says, why do you put God to the test? By placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have ever been able to bear. Peter says, Jewish stuff? The law? Are you kidding me? I couldn't keep it. James, John, guys, you were not able to ever keep this. Our fathers were never able to keep the law. Why are you going to put that yoke that we could not bear on these guys? Don't put God to the test. Galatians, in the book of Galatians, the whole context is Judaizers were coming in, Judaizers, excuse me, coming in and trying to do the very thing. Put the yoke of some uh, Jewish observances according to the law of the Old Testament upon the believers. Paul says, no, in Galatians 5.1. He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He even said in Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, that if you have come into Christ and been set free from the law and sin and death, and you go back into the things of the law, expecting that it has any merit for you, that you're going backwards in your Christianity. Again, if you want to observe some of those things to commemorate or celebrate, that's between you and God. But the moment you think they have merit or create some new standing before man or God, you have put yourself under the yoke of slavery. You've gone backwards. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. It's exactly what performance does, doesn't it? You ever had to perform for somebody? It makes you weary and heavy laden. When they're just never satisfied with you, you just always got to be jumping through the hoop. As soon as you make it through that one, there's another one. You know, that's what religion does to people. Jesus said, are you weighed down with those things? Come to me. Everyone who's weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. How are you doing your Christianity? If you find yourself weighed down and burdened, and if you feel the weight of a bunch of don'ts and the heaviness of the need to perform, brother, sister, you're doing it wrong. You've missed something of the essence of grace and the power of the gospel. We've been set free from performance because Jesus performed very well on the cross. He performed perfectly. That is the only performance that ever counts from now on in heaven with merit and standing before God. And so if you're feeling weighed down in your Christianity, something is askew. 
There is a difference between walking with Jesus in the Spirit and grace and being caught up in legalism. You know that you're walking in the Spirit and in grace with Jesus. You know you're in communion with Him if the load is, if the yoke is easy and the load is light. You know that something is askew and that you may be under the load of man-imposed legalism when it feels heavy upon you, your Christianity. Commandments of the Lord are not burdensome, 1 John 5 says. And if you're in that situation, you're probably lacking some joy and some peace. Because somewhere you've subscribed to religiosity instead of Christianity. There's a big difference. You know, religion says, uh, I work, therefore I am accepted. Or of the context within the church, I work, therefore I'm better. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I work. I'm accepted, so I'm okay. Religion, I work, therefore I'm accepted, I'm better. The gospel, I'm accepted, therefore because I've received such incredible love, the outflow is a sincere concern for the kingdom of God and laboring for His glory. And because that's so wonderful... The Bible here warns us to keep ourselves from legalism, to be aware of it, to not let anybody act as our judge so as to put us under that yoke because we have, as it says in verse 17, the substance. Those things are just a shadow. They just point to Jesus Christ. Everything in the law pointed to Jesus Christ. That's what he told those cats on the road to Emmaus that day. He has fulfilled it all. It's all about him. It's all done in him. And so all those other things, all those external observances are just the shadow. But we have the substance, or as the NIV says, the reality, which is Jesus. By the way, that's where we get our name. The reality, which is Jesus. Now, how silly are you to mess around with the shadow when you got the real deal? You know what I mean? I love my wife. She was here last service. Wish you could see her. She's awesome. I love my wife. I love to be with her. I love to talk to her. I love to commune with her. But can you imagine how stupid I would be if I spent my time talking to her shadow? Here she is. She's casting a shadow, and I'm talking to her shadow, and I go to embrace her shadow. Oh, I can't embrace her shadow. It just slips me. First of all, you'd commit me. You'd think I was nuts. Second of all, you would see that I was always, listen, always frustrated never actually able to get my hands around my wife, never able to actually commune with her because I'm messing around with this shadow. I need to go to the substance, the reality, the person. And so a mere external religious observance will always leave you frustrated. You're just grasping in the air. You're just striving after the whim. You're never satisfied. You've got to come to the person of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Man, I hope you're not bound up in religion today. Have you come to the person of Jesus Christ? Only he will satisfy. Now, how then do we view the law, the things of the Old Testament? Does that mean that they have no value for the Christian? Not by any means. The law still reveals to us the holiness of God and the standard of God. And it pictures and prefigures for us in amazing ways Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.8 that Uh, We know the law is good if a man uses it properly. It reveals sin. It illustrates the consequences of sin. But here's the thing about the law and external observances and religiosity. They have no 
power to prevent us from sinning or to redeem us from sin. No, no way to prevent us from sinning. In fact, you can make an argument, Paul makes it in the book of Romans, that as soon as you know the law, you're inclined to sin against it by your nature. As soon as you know the law, you're inclined to sin against it. So we have the substance of reality which is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, don't let anybody act as your judge in these matters. Now I want to talk about that for a minute. Paul says there in verse 16, don't let anybody act as your judge in these external observances. What does he mean by that? Because did you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he told the church in Corinth very clearly that they were to judge the church among them. They were to judge the members. Now that's a, 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 a sort of hot button phrase for us, isn't it? Because you often hear people saying, don't judge me. Now we're not supposed to judge people outside the church. They're already judged by the word of God and the Holy Spirit convicts them. We're to preach the gospel to them. We can talk about the commandments and sin and so on and so forth, but we're not to judge them. They're sinners. Their job description is to sin. But within the church, now you've been given a new nature. Things are supposed to change. And yet, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge lest you be judged. Why are we told here, don't let anybody judge you? We're told in Matthew 7, 1, don't judge anybody lest you be judged. And yet we're told in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are to judge the church among us. What is the distinction? When are we as Christians to judge one another and when are we to refrain? Let me share with you. The word judge used in all three places. Matthew 7, 1, 1 Corinthians 5, and Colossians chapter 2 is the same word in the Greek. Occasionally, it's helpful to dive into the original language of the New Testament, primarily Greek, because there we can gain some insights. It's a richer language. Uh, it's more varied, and there's nuances that we miss in the translation to English. And sometimes a Greek word is, has a certain mode to it. And the mode that it's written in in Greek will determine what it means. Now, when Jesus says, do not judge in Matthew 7, it's in a particular mode, that word judge. It is in the present imperative mode. Don't concern yourself with the details. I don't, but here's what it means. It means to pass sentence or to give one's opinion on a matter. When that Greek word is in that mode, the translation, the interpretation is to pass sentence or to give one's opinion on a matter. In other words, in those gray areas where we don't have a clear scriptural outline, too often people put themselves in the place of scripture, in the place of judge, because they say, well, I think you ought to do it this way. And what follows is, if you don't do it the way that they have judged, according to their opinion, you ain't doing it right. It can also mean to take the commandment of God and cloud it or distort it with one's own opinion. Perfect example, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we have the pool of Bethesda. We have a cat who's been there laying on his mat, paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus comes along and heals him. Jesus says, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
and he stands up. He's healed. 38 years he never walks. He's healed. He picks up his mat and he starts to walk. And no sooner does he start to walk than he encounters some religious people who judged in the very way that Jesus said we're not to judge. Now we pick it up in John 5 verse 9. Immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. That is utter insanity, isn't it? That's exactly what Jesus was speaking about. This man has been healed and these religious legalists cannot get beyond their adherence to the external observance to see the inward reality and power of God in the man's life. And I just imagine that, you know, it just could have zapped that man's joy right there. You know, just robbed his peace, just messed with his head. And it's just so wrong. And Christians often do the same thing. You know, I, before we started this church, I taught the college ministry at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara for seven years. And over the course of seven years, we saw hundreds of people come to the Lord. And, you know, in college, a lot of people, you know, in Santa Barbara, they, the, a lot of the girls, they don't wear too much many clothes. I don't know if you ever noticed that. But, you know, so not many clothes on some of the girls. And, and they'd come to reality and they'd get saved. You know, and they get saved and they come week after week and they're worshiping Jesus. No clothes on hardly, but they just love the Lord. They're so glad that they've been forgiven, that they've been washed, that they've been cleansed, that they've been made righteous. They're not worried about their clothes and these outward things. They're just worshiping the Lord. And what I hated to see in that time was some self-righteous, snooty, sin-sniffing Christian who would come along and say, you better put some clothes on, girl. What do you think? This is the house of God. You put some... Just put And listen, these girls do not know any more than the man who just got healed and picked up his pallet and was walking. They're just in love with the Lord, just thankful for the Lord. And yet someone comes along with his opinion, with his judgment, putting himself in that place and says, that's not enough clothes for me. Well, what's the standard? What's enough? You know, lots of different cultures, lots of different groups have different standards of that. You put yourself in the place of judge. Why not let Jesus do it? He'll tell them. He'll tell them when it's the right time. They'll look in the mirror one day and the Holy Spirit will go, oh, sweetie. The Lord will do it. Now, that's the way that we're not to judge. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told that we are to judge those inside the church. Different matter now. The context is this. There was a guy who was engaged in sexual immorality there in the church in Corinth. He was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And uh, Paul wrote and said, Church in Corinth, why are you not dealing with this? This is clear fornication and adultery. This is wrong. Deal with this. Judge the man and kick him outside the church, Paul said. He commanded them to do so to exercise church discipline. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 through 13, Do you not judge those who are within the church? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 
Now, it's the same word in the Greek, but it's in a different mode. Now, it's the present indicative mode. And so, it has a slightly different meaning. It means to assert something which is occurring while speaking. It's to proclaim the obvious. It's to call it like it is. It's when there is a clear violation of the precepts of Scripture, and you're not putting yourself in the place of judge. They've already been judged by the Word of God. You're simply calling to accountability. There's a big difference. And we are supposed to do that within the church. When somebody who is a Christian in the body of believers is in clear violation of the word of God, we are to call them to account. We're told in Galatians 6.1, if any of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, okay, this is a spiritual and right thing to do, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of gentleness, look into yourself lest you be tempted. So we are to then call our brothers and sisters out on their sin because listen, we are now a body. And what I do affects you. And your sin affects me. Have you ever read the story of Achan? You better check it out in the Old Testament. His sin affected the whole nation of Israel and they lost a great battle because of his sin. Your sin affects me. My sin affects you. We're a body, like it or not. We've been knit together under the headship of Christ Jesus. And so we are to lovingly, gently, with grace, deal with sin in one another's lives. Now, we're not to become sin sniffers. You know, you don't get legalistic and weird and snooty about it and every little thing. You leave room for the Spirit of God and the grace of God. But when somebody is transgressing, rebellious, such as the situation in 1 Corinthians 5, it must be dealt with. It's called church discipline. And a church that practices it is blessed by God and healthy. Church that ignores it allows a cancer to fester in its body. And that's destructive. It's even fatal. We're called to deal with such things gently, responsibly. And Scripture is the one that has already judged them. And now that removes the saying, the favorite saying of the ultra-cheesy Christian. You know, they're walking in sin, they're transgressing, they're sexually immoral, they're getting drunk, whatever it is. And they say to you, don't judge me. Now, if they're not a Christian, you say, that's cool, man, I'm not going to judge you, but I'm going to preach the gospel to you. But if they're a Christian, don't judge you, don't judge you. Can we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please? It tells me to judge you. Not according to my opinion, which is a prohibition of Matthew 7, 1, but according to the clear teaching of Scripture. Brother, you're fornicating. Sister, you're in drunkenness. There's envy, malice, backbiting, whatever it must be. We have got to deal with this sin. And then we're given an outline to do so in Matthew 18. And sometimes if someone refuses to repent, as was clearly the case in 1 Corinthians 5, then that person needs to be turned over to Satan. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved. That is to say, they're kicked out of the church. The Satan might kick them around and beat them up for a little bit that they might come to their senses, repent and come back to the Lord. And then we're to receive them back with open arms when repentance happens. Confrontation on sin always must have the end goal of restoration. Always restoration. It must always be done in the context of love. We must look first to ourselves lest we be tempted. We've got to take the log out our own eye before we deal with the speck in our brother's eye. 
And the goal is always, always, always restoration, restoring such a one. Do you understand those things? So there's a difference there. When we are to judge and when we're not to judge. And Paul says here in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, don't let anybody set themselves up as judge and, and uh, uh, mess with you concerning your external observances. Don't let anybody do that. You've been set free in Christ. I'm not talking about clear sin issues. I'm talking about external religious observances that you may or may not adhere to. Don't let anybody judge you because the substance, the reality is Jesus and Him alone. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. Now the head is Jesus Christ. And what happened here was the influence of Greek philosophical thought now is penetrating. In 16 and 17, it was legalistic Judaism. 18 and 19, it's Greek philosophical thought, which basically was beginning to say to the church, we have special knowledge. We have esoteric knowledge. It's secret knowledge. We've received it through visions and through revelation. And those people were participating in self-abasement or extreme humility, asceticism. We'll get to it in the next couple verses. But basically, they believed that it wasn't just Jesus alone, but it was Jesus and special knowledge. And they had the special knowledge. And if you didn't have it, you became a have-not, and you did not have the fullness of spirituality. Everything was not happening in your life. And he says, do not let anybody defraud you of this prize. Now, that word defraud of prize simply means to decide against, to declare unworthy. Don't let anybody come to you and say you're lacking something, you're unworthy. You don't have the fullness of Christ Jesus. You don't have all the promises of heaven. Because you're lacking in some way. You are not lacking, you're full in Christ Jesus. You're complete in Him, the Bible teaches. Now, They were saying this and they claimed that their authority was visions that they had had. And that those visions gave them deeper insights than other people and deeper insights into divine mysteries. Now, can you think of any parallels? Islam and Mormonism. Islam and Mormonism. The founder of Muhammad claimed that he had a series of revelations and visions. And that in these revelations and visions, he was told that, yes, God did speak to the Jews, but they blew it. And then he was told, then God went to the Christians, but they blew it. And now God is coming to you, Muhammad, and to Islam. And this is the true and complete revelation. And everybody needs to get in line with it. Same exact thing that was happening 2,000 years ago in the church in Colossae happened in the 6th century with Islam. By the way, did you know that Muhammad, when he first received those revelations and visions, he didn't know if they were from Satan or from God? Do you know that he would fall and shake in convulsions? And his wife said, matter-of-factly, I was just sure he was possessed by a devil. And it was only later on that Muhammad decided, no, I think it was God. Same thing with Mormonism. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, claimed to receive a series of revelations and visions that showed him, well, it wasn't just the Bible alone anymore, but it's also the Book of Mormon. 
And there's a more complete way, a more complete revelation. And if you have it, you have it. If you don't, then you have not. You don't have everything. It is the same satanic lie that was trying to penetrate the church 2,000 years ago that we see in Islam and in Mormonism and other false religions today. The exact same thing. And Paul says here that such people are inflated without cause. And also we're told here in verses 18 and 19 that they were engaging in the worship of angels. Now the reason they did that, I've outlined to you in previous lessons, but very quickly. Uh, Greek philosophical thought at the time birthed uh, a couple false constructs. One being that all matter was evil. God is good, but all matter was evil. And so they postulated that a good God could never come in contact with evil matter. So there must have been a series of emanations, they said. An emanation is something that is emitted from a source. They said there must have been a series of emanations that came forth from God. Angelic beings, good ones and bad ones, angels and demons. And that just uh, Jesus was just one of those emanations, but one of the many. But if you got all these emanations together, you would have the totality of deity. Paul says, uh-uh, in verse 9, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ Jesus. But they were teaching that to get to God, you had to go through these series of emanations. Oh, you're a Christian, you got Christ, that's cool, but he's just one of emanations, a good one, a great one, but there's other ones. And so they were promoting, they were engaged in the worship of angels to aid in our connection with God. Can you think of a modern day parallel? How about Roman Catholicism? How about Marianism? Mary as a co-redemptrix. Mary as a co-redeemer with Christ Jesus. How about the teaching, you want to get to God? Talk to his mother, Mary. The veneration of Mary, the praying to Mary, the worship of Mary, the adoration of Mary. How about the saints? Praying to the saints. Listen to me. It is the same satanic lie that Paul is disputing 2,000 years ago. It is the same lie, a different face. Same exact thing. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad to know you just need Jesus? That's all you need. He makes it so simple. It's so awesome. Verse 19 tells us that we have to hold to the head who is Christ Jesus. Now, You start to slip away from the Lord and that's when these things become attractive in your life. Because if you start to backslide away from intimacy with Christ, there will be a noticeable void in your heart. And you'll want to deal with that void. And someone will come along and say, hey, I've got some secret knowledge. And you're, wow, well, it doesn't seem like I have everything. Hey, the Lord didn't move. You backslid. But now you're susceptible because you're not intimate with the Lord. Now you've made yourself susceptible to these lies. I've got secret knowledge. Really, I need it. Or hey, if you go through this saint or this angel or this person, you see, if you hold to the head, these things are not an issue. You will not be swayed by this false mysticism. You will not be swayed by legalism if you are holding to the head who is Christ Jesus. The moment you move away, you get in a dangerous situation. And by the way, it says at the end of verse 19 that God is the one that causes true growth there in the verse 19. God is the one that causes true growth. Not these esoteric, superfluous, extracurricular things, but intimacy with the Lord himself. Now the last few verses. 
Verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Which, as the end of verse 22 says, are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Paul has dealt with legalism. He's dealt with false mysticism. Now, at the close, he deals with asceticism. Asceticism, we'll define it for you. It's very simple. It's the practice of severe self-discipline and the abstention from all forms of indulgence. It is the idea that if I deny myself any comfort, that somehow will have merit with God. It will somehow lend to my spirituality. It's been manifest in all sorts of ways throughout history. It's been manifest in people taking vows of silence. It's been manifest in people locking themselves away on mountaintops. It's been manifest by people mutilating their body. Denying themselves anything of comfort. I'm sorry, the Bible says that all things are to be received and rejoiced and they're sanctified by the word and prayer. But this false idea, it comes when you're not near with the Lord, when you really don't know Him, you start wondering, there must be something more. Maybe if I deny myself and abuse myself. Now, it's not the same as fasting. Fasting is prescribed throughout the Old and the New Testament. And it has spiritual value in that. There we teach our sinful nature. You do not rule me. You do not get what you want. And we feed and nourish the spiritual man. And it tunes us to hear better the voice of the Lord. This is different. This is saying if I merely don't touch that, or I don't taste that, or I don't handle that, I have some sort of spiritual merit before God. Well, the Bible is very clear. It says in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. I love the way Jesus said it very clearly in Matthew 15, starting in verse 17. He said, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Literally in the Greek, goes into the latrine. I love the Lord. He's so simple. Because at this point, the Pharisees were tripping out because the disciples didn't wash their hands, you know what I mean. He says, you think that that somehow defiles the man? Do you not understand that anything that goes into the mouth comes out later? It's got no spiritual significance to it. He says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth, now those come from the heart. Now those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. You see, the problem is sinfulness in the sinful nature. And as it says in the last verse, the last part of it here, verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. External observances and denying yourself of certain luxuries has no value to keep you from sin. Because the problem is your wicked heart. Jeremiah 17 says that it's wicked and full of deceit. Who could know it? The problem is the sinful nature. Food does not affect, it does not commend, it does not disqualify. And the only one that could deal with the heart is Jesus Christ. He's the one that redeems the heart. He's the one that gives to us a brand new nature. Now understand that our appetites are determined by our nature. You understand that? 
Our appetites are determined by our nature. If you're a cat, you have a certain nature. You like mackerel and chicken livers and mouse and birds and things that cats eat. Your appetite is for those things. It's determined by your nature. If you're a person, you got a sinful nature. You like sin, sex, drunkenness, the flesh, perversion. But when you get born again, when you get saved, you're given a new nature. Now your nature determines your appetites. And the new nature becomes hungry for the things of God. Can I get a witness? The new nature begins to long after the things of the Lord. The new nature begins to long for the heavenlies and for the kingdom of God and the ideas and the precepts of God and the wisdom of God. And so when that new nature kicks in, all you need to do is pay attention to the do's and the don'ts will take care of themselves. You understand that? And the do's, here we end, are given to us in the first three verses of chapter 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. There's a do, there's an action, there's a verb. Where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on, there it is, the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're dead to sin. It no longer has power over us. Trying to deal with it with external observances is like grasping for a shadow. It will leave you frustrated and unsatisfied. The substance of all things and the power of all things is Jesus Christ. And the way that we deal with Jesus Christ is by doing the do's. Setting your mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Let your mind dwell on the heavenlies. Those are the things to do. And it's very simple. How do we keep seeking the things above and set our mind on the things above? I know no better way than through time spent in the presence of God, in the Word of God, and in the ear of God. How do you set your mind on the things above? How do you do the do's and not worry about the don'ts? Spend time in the presence of God, the Word of God, and the ear of God. Worship, Bible study, and prayer. It never changes. It's the basics of Christianity. Those are the do's. I have found no better way to keep my mind on the heavenlies than to be worshiping in the presence of God. Than to be digging into the word of God, which is the very flesh of God itself. Feasting on the bread of life here. And to be in God's ear continually praying. That puts me in the heavenlies. And you know what? All of a sudden, I don't want to do the don'ts anymore. I want God's kingdom and God's power and his righteousness and his will for my life. It's all in intimacy with Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you for these amazing truths this morning. And Lord, I ask now that you would come with your presence. I ask the Holy Spirit, you would fall upon this place and you would just begin to touch hearts as we worship you now, that you would set people free from religiosity. Set people free that have been derailed and ripped off by legalism, Lord. Set people free from idolatry. Deliver them into a real, 
relationship with you, Lord. We cling to the promise now that if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And Lord, we want to repent if there be any way that we've gone wrong. That's such a wonderful word, repentance. If there's any way that we've erred and we need to repent and just get that out of the way, we want to do it today, Lord. We want to draw near to you. We want to rest in your bosom, in your arms, in your presence and experience your power. We want to seek the things that are above. We want our lives to be hidden with you today, Jesus. So come, Lord. Manifest yourself in this place.